I think part of the thing that's sort of exciting about this game is that things constantly are changing and, and it's easy to get focused on the things that change for the worse. But typically where one door closes and other opens. And so part of the game of cat and mouse is looking for the next door. If you focus on the fact that the door in front of you is closed, you're not going anywhere. If instead you're looking for another entrance, then probably you're going to find it. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is Episode 8, The Points and Miles Game. For most people, signing up for a credit card and getting the introductory bonus that comes with the card will probably go something like this. This is Grant Thomas. He writes the blog Travel with Grant. One of my first credit cards that I got was an American Express Gold Delta Sky Miles card. I'm actually looking at my spreadsheet. It looks like I got it September 1st, 2011, and it had a sign-up bonus of 30,000 Delta Sky Miles. And at the time, that was way more Delta Sky Miles than I had ever earned from flying. So I felt like I could travel the world wherever I wanted to go. But 30,000 Delta Sky Miles um, can't really get you that far. So I ended up using it for a domestic flight to visit a friend of mine in uh, Moline, Iowa, using Delta Sky Miles. And it paid for the whole trip, saving me a couple hundred dollars. So I thought that was really cool. Even though looking back now, it doesn't seem like a great redemption. But at the time, it seemed like a an awesome way to spend those miles. That's cool because free stuff is always fun, right? But that's also not really anything to write home about. No kid is ever going to be like, hey, grandpa, tell us the story again about your free trip to Iowa. And most people don't take it any further than that. Sign up for a credit card, get some moderately valuable bonus, and do something unremarkable with it. But for some people... That little taste of something free sends them on a quest to completely own the credit card point system. And they end up with a story like this one. This is Nick Reyes. He writes for a website called The Frequent Miler. He and his wife stayed in $3 a night hostels before they found credit card points. I started planning for this honeymoon and I spent about a year collecting points for the honeymoon. And by the time we got to the honeymoon, I had had enough points that we took a four-month honeymoon all around the world and visited 18 different countries and flew mostly business and first class. We were on the plane en route to our final destination on the trip, which was South Africa. And my wife looked at me and she said, you know, what was your favorite part of the trip so far? And at that point, we had flown several first-class flights and business-class flights. And um, I, I said, wow, you know, flying Etihad first-class was amazing, you know, with an onboard chef and all the food we wanted to eat and insisting that we try the rosé and the, you know, <laughs> the regular kind of sparkling wine, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and we had flown Singapore first-class at that point and Cathay Pacific business. And all of those things were amazing, but no one thing really stood out at that point. I said, you know, a lot of it has been incredible. It's been amazing. We've been able to take these points and do it, but I'm not sure what my favorite thing was yet. And uh, and so we, we were on our way to South Africa and we went to Kruger Park, which was a trip that I think we always assumed would be a once in a lifetime sort of a thing, you know, going on safari in South Africa would be something we do once uh, if we saved up for years and years. 
And and here we were flying to South Africa in business class on these points that we had used on Qatar Airways, uh, one of the best business class products in the sky. Great food, great wine. Uh, we get to South Africa, we get to Kruger Park and wake up in the morning and uh, and drive around and, and see lions and see hippos and warthogs and uh, elephants. And it's just, it was absolutely amazing driving around a corner and there's a rhino standing right next to the road. Uh, it was just an electric feeling that I can't compare to anything else. And so uh, not only was that an amazing trip and, and very clearly became the favorite part of our honeymoon, uh, but it became something so compelling that 15 months later, we went back and did it again. This episode is about playing the credit card game for profit and getting more out of it than you put in. Let's start with some data just to get a sense of the magnitude of the thing we're talking about. I mean, in the average year, uh, I use a few million miles, probably two-ish million a year, I would say, uh, between miles and, and various hotel kinds of points, uh, which means obviously I need to be earning at a clip to be able to keep that that pace of spend up. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm constantly earning quite a bit too. In terms of active credit cards, at the moment, I, I probably have, I don't know, 15-ish. Uh, I've had as many as 25 or 30 open at a time before. I've been trying to pare down a little bit. Between my wife and I, we've got a couple dozen. And so we've been trying to pare down the collection a little bit, mostly for organizational purposes, You know, become a little bit more focused and a little bit more organized over time. But certainly, we've opened lots and lots of credit cards because we open and close new ones every year. There are a lot of ways to play the game. But the only rule that's universal is that you have to be able to pay off the card in full every month. If you don't do that, then interest payments will eclipse any travel benefits you might receive. So when people talk about generating a lot of spend, they aren't talking about increasing their debt load. There are other ways to generate the spend without taking on debt. One way is the process known as manufactured spending, where you buy something with your credit card that can be easily turned into cash like a Visa gift card, for instance, and then you take that cash and pay off your bill. The vast majority, like 90% plus, is from manufactured spending. Um, and I don't necessarily recommend that most people follow the same ratio, uh, but we've gotten to the point where we're fairly efficient at manufactured spending. And I say we, uh, and and when I was thinking, when I said we as my wife and I, because uh, we do a lot of this together, but but also we in terms of at the blog, have become pretty efficient at manufactured spending to the point where uh, it's easy enough to generate points that I, I don't sign up for nearly as many credit cards now or open as many credit cards. And that's partly really to avoid attracting unwanted attention too. At some point when you're taking part in this manufactured spending world, which you know the idea there is spending money and getting it back and, and earning the points quote unquote, for free or as close to it as possible. When you're doing certain volumes of that, you really kind of want to avoid drawing any extra attention or eyes on your accounts. And so I think to some extent, those of us who are heavily into manufactured spending are more reticent to open new cards in order to kind of avoid unwanted attention. However, I think for the vast majority of people, the lowest hanging fruit, the easiest way to earn a lot of points quickly is through new credit card signups. And, and when there's a, an amazing offer, then you know we'll open it. We did, Recently, there have been a couple of incredible offers. We've opened a few new cards just the last month here because the offers are just so big that they're hard to ignore. For points and miles enthusiasts... 
the way they get their points will reflect their own personal preferences. Nick finds value in manufactured spending, while Grant is more interested in sign-up bonuses. I actually have like a spreadsheet that I use to keep track of all my credit cards and my wife's credit cards. And um, I have it split between open cards and closed cards with details of like the sign-up bonus, um, when the annual fees post, how much the annual fees are. I'm actually opening up the spreadsheet right now so I can give you an exact number because I can't keep track. It changes pretty often. It's probably in the 35 card range for just myself. And then my wife has probably six or seven cards. And then um, in terms of miles, I use Award Wallet to track all my point balances and loyalty programs. I don't actively keep track of how many points I have or how much I use. I just seem to have um, more than enough that I need. If I include all airline miles and hotel points, probably close to like 300 to 400,000 miles total for myself. And that probably includes a few trips that my wife took as well using my miles and points. Grant tells a story where the punchline is roughly, and that's how I got my wife for free. Taken out of context, it doesn't sound great, right? It sounds like it might be a mail-order bride situation, but I'm making it sound a lot worse than it really is. The story is actually pretty conventional, except for the fact that Grant met his wife through a failed point-hacking scheme. A few years ago, British Airways was running a promotion on their online shopping portal where you could earn 150 British Airway Avios, which are the frequent flyer miles that they use, per dollar when you spend for match.com so a few different blogs had written about where you could buy a one-year membership and then get all the add-ons and perks um, basically load up your cart to max out the one-year membership and i think the cost would have been five hundred dollars or something like that and you would have earned 80 or ninety thousand british airway miles and 80 to ninety thousand british airway miles is probably worth between a thousand and fifteen hundred dollars It seemed like a no-brainer in terms of essentially buying miles for really cheaply. When I was using Match.com, since I had paid for it, I thought might as well use it and see what see what's out there because I was I was single at the time. And uh, a few weeks after that, uh, my wife Laura uh, messaged me through the Match.com website, and we started dating. And then things were going really well, and I was kept following up with British Airways because they had not posted the miles to my account. And then after a while, they're like, go talk to Match.com, it's their issue. And then Match.com would be like, okay, go talk to British Airways. They're not giving you the miles that you earn. And then I went back and forth for a few weeks. And then eventually Match.com just refunded my whole purchase amount. And then I never got any miles, but I got my wife out of it for free. So it was not, not a bad deal. Grant knew that he wanted to get into credit cards even before he had any income. So he started researching the lay of the land when he was in college. But in Nick's case, it was more of an accident. He wasn't looking for a way to travel cheaply. But he has the kind of mind that just looks for angles. Where it all kind of began for me was uh, I wanted to buy something. It was a, an Android tablet, just a silly Android tablet that I, it was like $100 or something like that. And at that point in our lives, $100 wasn't a lot of money, but it wasn't inconsequential either. And I knew that my wife would not approve of me buying that. I knew that she would think that was a total waste of money. 
and and I saw this great deal. You know, like I said, it was about a hundred bucks or something like that, and and it was a fantastic, fantastic price. And I really wanted it, and I knew that she would think it was a waste of money. And I started looking on Amazon and eBay, and I said, well, you know, I think I can probably get one hundred and fifty dollars out of one of these if I buy three of them for three hundred bucks and I sell two of them for one hundred and fifty each. I'll end up with the same three hundred dollars back in my pocket and a tablet that maybe she'll let me keep, right? And so I did. And sure enough, I I was fine keeping the tablet. And in fact, my wife looked at me and said, you know, maybe you ought to buy 10 more of those. Uh, We saw a pellet stove on sale one day. And this this pellet stove was like 950 bucks for a stove that ordinarily sold for like $3,500. And my wife said, I think we ought to buy this and try to flip it, try to sell it for a profit. And I said, I don't know anything about pellet stove. I mean, I know it burns something to heat something. And that's about the extent of what I know about, you know, I know it's a stove. That's about it. And she said, well, you know, it's $950. It's obviously regular prices a lot more. What's the worst that's going to happen? We'll probably be able to at least get our money back out of it. And if we lose, what will we lose? 50 bucks, 100 bucks. At that point, we had bought and sold enough stuff that that seemed acceptable risk to me at the time. Uh, Actually, it seemed acceptable to her. And she convinced me, I suppose, that it was acceptable risk. And so bought it and tossed it up on the barter section on Craigslist. And somebody offered me a motorcycle that booked at $3,600 for it. And so I made that trade and sold that bike for about $3,300 a couple weeks later. And uh, and then I was hooked on this buying and selling. And I thought, well, man, I'm using my credit card to buy these things. And I, I can just earn free points while I do this. And then maybe we can use that to pay for some of our cheap $3 a night hostel and, you know, cheap flights and that sort of thing. And so I spent, that was about 2012, 2013, I spent about a year buying and selling stuff. And then as as I started to realize that I was earning these free points that were worth something on the one credit card that we had, I realized maybe there were some other options. After Nick's eureka moment, he started reading blogs about credit card points and then started attending conferences. He attended a talk by the founder of The Frequent Miler, a guy named Greg Davis Keene, And it blew Nick's mind. He became so engrossed that eventually he started working for the website. There's so much to uncover with points and miles. It's like peeling an onion with infinite layers. But the first layer that typically gets peeled is something like, isn't this a scam? People are like, they'll ask you like, hey, is this legal? And you're like, yeah, I'm getting a credit card from the bank using my real name, my address, my income. I'm spending money on the card. I'm earning points. I'm using those points to travel. Just because I got a $500 flight for $5 doesn't mean I'm doing anything illegal. The part of this thing that I'm most interested in is the game element, because humans naturally gravitate to games. If you want to get humans really motivated, give them a little reward and a little challenge and watch them go. In the case of points and miles, it's almost a classic game. There are achievements and levels and strategies. Getting the first card with points is like passing level one. Staying in a hotel you can't really afford is another level. Calling Amex to see if you can get your annual fee waived is like battling a video game boss. And there's also scorekeeping. How little can you spend to get the thing you're buying? How many deals can you stack together at once? How many countries have you been to? What level of status do you have? Are you silver or gold, or platinum, or titanium, or ambassador. Tell someone that you're a Hyatt globalist and watch them be about as impressed as if you just told them that you're a level three wizard 
in Dungeons and Dragons. Nick and his colleagues at the Frequent Miler took this hobby and they turned it from a metaphorical game into a literal game. We each decided we were going to take 40,000 points and $400 and see who could get the farthest away. Three of us that work at the blog, we're going to start in Washington, D.C. and see who could get the farthest away from there uh, over the course of however long their money and points could last. And 40,000 points isn't a whole lot. That's like less than what most credit cards will give you as a sign-up bonus when you first open the card and meet the minimum spend. So it seemed like a really attainable amount for the average person. And $400 seemed like an amount of money that most people could imagine using on a trip. And of course, we're all competitive people. So I really started to dig into what I could do. And and the, the point system that I had in this case was city thank you points. And so I went to the city thank you website and I started looking at the different transfer partners. And I was familiar with many of them because I had been using many of them for years, but there were some I had never looked at. And so uh, one of them, for example, was Turkish Airlines, Turkish Miles and Smiles. And I didn't know anything about their loyalty program. I mean, this is an airline based in Europe that I just hadn't ever paid attention to. And so I went to their website and I started reading through the terms and conditions of the Turkish Miles and Smiles program, looking for an award chart that would give me the price of flights and see how far I could go or which regions I could fly in between. And um, so I started digging into that and and within their award charts in the small print somewhere, I found the, the fact that you could fly um, between different regions for various different prices that ranged into the many tens of thousands of points. But then it said that domestic flights on Star Alliance Airlines were 15,000 points round trip. So I mean, 7,500 points each way. And, and that's far less than what most programs charge for domestic flights. So that seemed like a, a pretty interesting deal to me at that point. To put that in perspective, that's you know, at least a third less than what most programs charge, really more of a 40% or so less than what most airlines would charge for a similar kind of a flight. I thought, wow, percentage off, that seems pretty good. And so I started digging a little bit further and looking at the definition of the regions. And, and so it said domestic flights. So let me see how they define that. I mean, obviously, domestic sounds to me like it would be within one country, but the United States, for instance, is a really big country. Most airlines will split up the United States, maybe into an east and a west, or at the very least into the contiguous 48 states and Alaska and Hawaii are typically their own thing. And then you have, of course, Guam and Saipan and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And, and often those things are all separated, but but different airlines classify those things in different ways. So it's all kind of part of the puzzle and figuring out, well, how do they classify the various parts of the United States? It's a big country. And sure enough, I found within there and their definition of North America, Hawaii was included. I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. That's a domestic flight from Washington, D.C. to Hawaii. Does it cost the same to fly from Washington, D.C. to Hawaii that it would from Washington, D.C. to Boston? I mean, that seems impossible, right? It seems like one should be much less than the other and one should be much more. The flight all the way to Hawaii should cost a lot more, it would seem, uh, but sure enough, by by digging into those definitions and that kind of detail, I was able to find that, oh well, no, Hawaii was considered part of North America. And so it was the same 7,500 points to fly all the way to Hawaii that it would have been to fly anywhere else in the U.S. And so uh, by doing that sort of activity, I was able to take 40,000 points and fly from Washington, D.C. to Hawaii to Tokyo 
to Bangkok, to Brisbane, Australia, uh, to uh, Christchurch, New Zealand by way of Nelson, New Zealand, and then to a, a tiny Pacific island called Niue, population of about 1,600 people that has two flights a week in and out. Uh, so a very remote place that's hard to get to and lots of tourists uh, end up getting there. And so I was able to take this relatively small amount of points and fly more than halfway around the world uh, by, by looking for those types of small loopholes. Nick found his deal by focusing on the redemption side of the equation. But the other side of the equation is the earning side. How do you max out your credit card spend to achieve the most points? Of course, you can pay for dinner with your card that gets 3x at restaurants, but you can also look for tricks. If you're familiar with Target, they have like a credit card, a debit card, and then a prepaid reloadable card. And it kind of works the same across all three where you get 5% back when you shop in-store or online, you get all those other perks. But the nice thing about the prepaid card, which um, in the blog the blog terms, we called it Target Redbird. Um, you could basically load $5,000 per month onto the prepaid reloadable Target Redbird with a credit card. And it was basically like an online bank and you could do bill pay um, back to the credit card you used to fund it, or you could transfer the money back to your bank account. So they basically let you do like $5,000 of free spend every month. And people would multiply that when they would get more than one card. So they would have family members get the card. Um, I had me plus my brother and my parents. So I had access to four cards. So four times 5,000 was 20,000 spend per month. Basically, you could charge whatever you wanted and then get the points from it and it didn't cost you anything. I'm just going to pause for a second to underline what Grant is saying here. He was generating 20,000 points a month for free. To put that in perspective, let's say after six months, he takes the 120,000 points and uses them to get a business class ticket to Tokyo. That ticket might have a cash value of $6,000. That's the value proposition of a lot of these schemes. Spend a little time and energy and sometimes a small amount of cash and get something with real value. But nothing lasts forever. And after the Redbird got hammered, Target made some changes. Uh, after about six or seven months, Target made a change where you couldn't use a credit card to fund it, You could, but you could load it with a debit card. And then this was right when um, like Visa and MasterCard debit cards started being issued with pins. So you could basically buy like a $500 Visa gift card, take it to Target, load it to your Target Redbird card, and then kind of do the same thing. You just had that extra cost of buying this gift card, which is usually about 5 or $6. So it still was really worth worth it just had it added an extra step to it and then that lasted for another three or four months and then uh target decided okay nobody can load with any credit or debit card just cash only and then at that point it was dead but target's countermeasures aren't exactly unique the screws have been slowly tightening on manufactured spending over the years um, a lot of people would buy like visa gift cards and then go to walmart and buy money orders then deposit the money orders in their account pay off their credit card. That's kind of the one thing that people still do in Walmart and the, these gift card companies are making it harder where the Walmart um, register won't accept Visa gift cards or the cashier will say no gift cards or the gift card company won't let it work at Walmart. Like A lot of these things are making it harder and harder for people. So I think manufactured spending is drying up a lot. But I do do a little bit of manufactured spending to meet some of the 
minimum spending requirements on the signup bonuses. There's a few different ways you could do that. So like you could do like buying and reselling either like gift cards or actual products to meet minimum spending requirements. Um, you can pay taxes or your mortgage or other bills using credit cards if you use a service called Plastic. But remember that Nick earns millions of miles per year, and the vast majority are from manufactured spend. The loopholes aren't obvious, but they do require some critical thinking about the way the system works. Some stores provide what's called level three data to the credit card issuers, to the banks, which shows the bank exactly what you purchased. If you've ever had a credit card statement and looked through it and realized that it said on your statement what you had spent your money on, that's what we call level three data that the merchant has provided to the credit card issuer. So then it becomes a game of determining, okay, well, which stores provide level three data and which stores don't. And then to take it a step further, if I have a credit card that earns a category bonus at grocery stores, how do you define a grocery store? Walmart, for instance, isn't a grocery store in a lot of places, but a neighborhood market, is that a grocery store? Is your local uh, sort of small market considered a grocery store? How about the baker who bakes the cake for your wedding? Are they classified as a restaurant or caterer or grocery uh, provider or something like that? And so then it becomes a game of determining, okay, well, which of those places code in a way that might give me a bonus category on my credit card? Uh, if I have a credit card, the bonus is gas. Is there a convenience? store that doesn't even perhaps sell gas. Maybe they don't even have gas pumps. But because of the way the merchant is coded in the, the uh, merchant coding categories, it codes as a gas station and perhaps they don't provide level three data. And so maybe I can buy a Visa gift card without the bank knowing that that's what I purchased. And so there's that constant game uh, in terms of trying to find those types of loopholes and then in determining what might work. You know, one of the, the great loopholes in this game ever was years ago when the U.S. Mint used to sell dollar coins for a dollar with free shipping. And so you could essentially just buy money and there were people buying hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these dollar coins and just trucking the box to the bank and dropping it off and paying the credit card bill. The way that Nick breaks down each part of the credit card data system reminds me of that scene in Jurassic Park where the velociraptors are said to systematically test the fences for weaknesses. But Nick and the other travel hackers do that with every element of the travel system. Iberia, a Spanish airline, was offering a bonus in miles if you booked any flight, anywhere Iberia flies, you get a certain number of miles. And so uh, if you could you could get up to 90,000 bonus miles, uh, which was a, a large amount that's enough for more than enough for a round trip business class flight to Europe. And what people discovered was that bonus would happen on any flight anywhere Iberia flew. So rather than thinking in terms of, well, I live in New York, I need to fly to Spain if I want to fly in Iberia. Instead, but many people in the miles and points community discovered was, well, how about if I book a flight from Barcelona to Ibiza and just don't show up? Do I still get the miles? And in, in many cases, you wouldn't. But in this particular case, when you dug through the terms, there was no requirement that you actually took the flight in order to earn the bonus miles. Those flights from Barcelona to Ibiza or, or similar types of things were in the 10 to $20 range. And so uh, for $180, you were able to generate enough points to fly business class round trip to Europe and still have points left over. Another exploit is called a boomerang. And it turns the idea of a connecting flight on its head. And there are a number of those boomerangs that have existed at various points in time where 
For example, maybe you could fly from New York to Los Angeles and have a connection in Frankfurt. And you know, when the airline agent doesn't know the difference between Frankfurt, Kentucky and Frankfurt, Germany, then you may be able to connect in Frankfurt, Germany on the way. And, uh, and again, perhaps get off the plane because the price that you're paying is the New York to Los Angeles price, which would be much less than the New York to Frankfurt, Germany price. Some of the things we're talking about are dead now, but the point is to describe the kind of thing to look for. Also, not everything requires a scheme or a trick. Sometimes they're just looking for widely available discounts that anyone could get. There's an opportunity right now. You could use Avianca Life Miles to fly business class from New York to Lisbon for just 35,000 miles. Or earlier this year, I booked a flight for next year to fly in a flatbed business class from New York City, from JFK to Madrid for 17,000 points. And, you know, those 17,000 points are something that cost me very little uh, in order to generate, you know, we're talking $100-ish to generate the number of points to be able to do that worst case scenario, maybe. And so that still exists. And and that's the 17,000 point was a promotion. Typically, that same flight would cost 34,000 points. And they're also not confined to getting their deals from credit card and loyalty programs. They'll take the value wherever it might exist. The website that we use is TransferCar, and they basically do one-way car and RV relocations. Throughout the year, cars and RVs will end up in one part of the country, and like summertime, they'll be here, and then the wintertime, they need to be somewhere else. Um, so instead of the car rental and the RV rental agencies paying to transport them themselves, they basically offer them for free or a dollar a day or whatever to have people drive them for them from point A to point B, wherever they need to go. So uh, my brother and I, we had an RV from Los Angeles, and we drove it to Denver, I think we took seven or eight days to do it, and we stopped at a few national parks in Utah and Nevada and Colorado along the way. So I've never driven an RV before and slept in an RV before, but it was quite an interesting experience. Two people, I feel like, is the max you could fit comfortably. Any more than that, I think it would be a little uncomfortable. When you're working with small edges, there are a lot of things that can go wrong. Making an assumption that your strategy will work perfectly is a good way to ensure that things will go awry. Nick was using a gift card reselling site to generate spend and he narrowly averted disaster. I would buy gift cards and then I would commit to sell them and I would enter the gift card numbers on the website and then it would take, I don't know, a couple of weeks to get a check in the mail to pay for the the gift cards that I'd sent. And so I started scaling up and up and up. And then one day I realized that I had more than $20,000 in gift cards out, uh, you know, I already submitted on this site that I was waiting for checks uh, in the mail, (laughs) waiting for checks in the mail for this $20,000. I thought to myself, do I really know the person who owns this site? And, And I thought more importantly to myself, who in my life do I know well enough that I would give 20 grand to under the premise that they're going to get me back in a few weeks? And I realized that there just weren't very many people that I trusted in that way uh, to to hand that kind of money to under the hope that I got paid back in a few weeks. So at that point, I realized I'm I'm in over my head here because that was an amount of money that I wouldn't be comfortable losing for sure. That would would have been devastating. So I, I pulled back and I said, okay, I need to slow down with this. And, um, and my goodness, that was just a lucky, 
lucky break for me because a couple of months later, the checks from that particular site started bouncing and uh, people didn't get paid back and, and the site folded and went bankrupt. And later on, I would read the bankruptcy filings and find that some people were out 60, 70, 80. Uh, one woman was out $98,000 and change. It would be easy to be tempted by all of the seemingly free points you could accrue buying gift cards and then reselling them. And that's probably a cautionary tale about strategies that seem too good to be true. But some of the danger is inherent when the positive outcome is a 1% or 2% profit and the negative outcome is a loss of 100%. You know, when you're dealing with, in our case, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of gift cards, one misplaced gift card will wipe out the profit from lots and lots of that activity. You know, for as an example, there's a, a particular uh, place where you're able to buy $25,000 worth of gift cards at a time. And, you know, I, I look at it and if you're using a card that earns 2% cash back and your edge is about 1%, you know, then you're talking about on that making what $250 or so, right? I mean, it's a, not a huge amount of money. If you lose just a little bit of that 25, you lose one $1,000 out of that, uh, then you've wiped out all the profit from your next several trips. So uh, it's definitely a, a type of game that's, that's played at razor thin margins. And, you know, it's something that's been interesting and eye opening to me, because, you know, if you ask me eight or nine years ago, whether I thought there was much value in exploiting margins that were 1% or 1.5%, I would have said, you know, that just seems like too little. It doesn't really seem to make sense to me. But the more I've got into this particular game, the more I've realized that as you scale, that 1% or 1.5% edge turns into a lot. To avoid having to learn a hard and expensive lesson right out of the gate, you might want to learn to walk before you try to run. When people are just starting out, like you got to like start slow, start small. Don't apply for a credit card that requires $10,000 spending in three months and you normally spend $500 a month. So then you're rushing to buy $10,000 of gift cards, but then you buy Amazon gift cards instead of Visa gift cards. Now you're like, okay, now I have $10,000 to spend on Amazon. Okay, let me buy a bunch of random stuff. Oh no, the bills do. How am I going to pay back $10,000? If you would have just went for a card that we have to spend like $500 in like three months to get like a $100 bonus. Like, okay, you can figure that out and then work your way up from there. It's also important to have kind of like a, a backup plan or a plan C just in case what you think you're going to do, uh, either like you either dies before you get to do it or it dies like halfway through it or for some reason it doesn't work the way you thought. So always have backup plans that you can go to if you need to. You also shouldn't assume that the deal you're buying into today will be worth the same thing tomorrow. Points and miles suffer devaluation like a currency that's being inflated. Club Carlson, which is now known as Radisson Rewards, had uh, a few different credit cards with US Bank. When you had the credit card, they would basically give you buy one, get one free hotel stays when you used your points. And the credit card made it so easy to earn these points because it was like five points per dollar. And uh, back then you could do a lot of manufactured spending. So you're basically buying these points really cheaply. But that deal with the buy one, get one free hotel stays ended a few years ago. Uh, that was one of my favorite deals. And people racked up millions of Club Carlson points. And then all of a sudden they like, shut down the ability to do buy one, get one free. And then they increased the rates for the hotels. So it's an important lesson to uh, 
not go too big on any one thing because you got to be a little diversified because Radisson hotels uh, are not the nicest and they're not everywhere. So you don't want to be stuck holding a bunch of them that you can't really use very easily. Devaluation of the points is actually one of the more friendly countermeasures. They can get quite a bit more aggressive than that. American Express has been known to claw back points if they think that the cardholder wasn't following the spirit of the rules. And when American Airlines realized that their program had been abused, they went nuclear. If you've ever been on an American Airlines flight, I'm sure that you've had a flight attendant try to sell you on the idea of opening an American Airlines credit card. And um, and so that's something that many people do. And, and perhaps you've been on a flight before where you've heard somebody tell the flight attendant, oh, I already have that card. And maybe you've heard the flight attendant say, well, you can open another one. And uh, that's something that for many years did work. And there were some ways to exploit that in terms of uh, people getting uh, mail offers and signing up for accounts in their dog's name or, or neighbor's name or whatever it might be and, and getting mail offers and then using codes from those mail offers to open up a bunch of different credit cards. Uh, they were the same credit card rather again and again and again. And, uh, and eventually American Airlines decided that they didn't like the fact that they were helping to fund these large credit card bonuses for people who were just exploiting the system to earn as many points as they could. And so they began shutting down the accounts of people who had done that, uh, engaged in that activity. And and that particular example was one where uh, it was right around the holidays and suddenly people were showing up at the airport and finding out that their tickets weren't valid. Grant and Nick have been at this long enough to have some tips for people who are thinking about getting involved. I love spreadsheets. So I have spreadsheets for hotel free night certificates so it's it's a little tricky because like you'll have like the credit card and then the annual fee will post on this date you'll get the free night certificate on this date and it expires on this date and every program is slightly different like some will give you the certificate like a month after you pay the annual fee some will give it to you two weeks before your annual fee um and then due to the coronavirus they're always extending these so expiration dates are changing so keeping track and organized on these things is really important. And uh, it's kind of like once you lose organization, it's like really hard to get the train back on the track. So kind of always stay organized as much as possible. I have spreadsheets about credit cards that have upcoming annual fees. And then I, I usually call into the credit card company to see if they'll waive the annual fee or give me some kind of statement credit or retention offer to offset it. So then I have like, I have to follow up and make sure I got the statement credit or the bonus points they were promising. So being organized and um, really goes a long ways. A cornerstone of the game is also flexibility. Earning Hilton points means that you're going to start looking for Hiltons to stay at. And that's not always the best option. So points that can be transferred have a higher value due to optionality. Um, so I try to earn a lot of transferable points which would be like Chase Ultimate Rewards and City Thank You Points and American Express Membership Reward Points. If I'm not working on a minimum spend requirement on a new card, I try to use a card that earns points into those three transferable programs. And they kind of just sit there and accumulate until there's a use. And then you can either book a flight or a hotel or transfer points to an airline. But I do have like points in like a bunch of different programs. But I try to focus on the the big airlines and the big hotels not these random small airlines i flew once two years ago and i'm never flying again um but that's where the nice thing about these airline alliances so you fly on one airline and they're part of a bigger alliance and you can credit your miles to the main airline you care about so that way all your miles and points are in one account 
Because the universe of travel deals is seemingly endless, it can be easy to get distracted chasing something that you don't even need. I've had a Marriott card for two years, and I think I've spent one or maybe two nights at Marriott in that time. It didn't occur to me when I got excited about the sign-up bonus that I didn't have a use for the points. This is apparently a common problem. Decide what you want to make happen. I really want to fly to Europe in a flatbed seat, or I really want to go and see penguins in South Africa, or whatever it might be that's on your bucket list. Pick that thing and then just start to research the best ways to do that thing. And so I'll sometimes explain to people that that's kind of what I do. I'll take a goal, something that I want to make happen, and say, okay, what's the best way for me to make that happen? What's the most efficient way for me to make it happen using the least number of points and the least amount of money? Because I like to keep as much money in my pocket as I can, and I want to keep as many points as I can for a future trip and get as many trips as I can. But also, I want to travel comfortably. A lot of people that are like kind of new to the hobby or just casual people in the world, they always ask like, what's the best credit card to get? That's like impossible. That's like asking like, what's the best car to get? Like, what's the best phone to get? Like, there's no one best card for everybody. It just really depends like what your goal is. Like if your goal is to do road tripping around the US, it's one card. If your goal is to fly to Japan in first class, it's a different card. If your goal is to go on a cruise, it's a different card. So there's not like a single best answer. It just really depends like what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? And then you kind of have to work backwards from there. Like if you really want to go to Disneyland for spring break, okay. How are you going to get to Disneyland? Okay. Figure out which airlines fly there. Figure out which hotels you want to stay at. Okay. So I want to fly this airline. I want to stay at this hotel. Okay. How do you get those miles? How do you get those points? So you kind of just start at the finish line and then work your way back to the starting line in a sense and give yourself plenty of time because like you can't get a card today, spend money today and get the points tomorrow. Like it's going to take one or two months depending on how fast you spend to meet the minimum spend. And then once you do that, you might have to wait for your statement to close. And then you might have to wait like another few weeks for the points to show up in your account. So this requires a lot of planning up front. You can't really rush it. That's just the way it goes. So that's that's kind of like my answer for what's the best credit card to get. It's it's like basically you turn around like what kind of trip do you want to go on? Like what do you care about? And that's that's how I would look at it. Points and miles flow from the marketing departments for credit cards, airlines, and hotels. Which is to say, these companies aren't dumb. They're trying to induce demand. They're trying to get you with thirst traps. It has to go back to like your personal preferences. There's a lot of deals that like I'll read the title of it and I'm like, okay, I'm not interested in that. I really like kind of like the low hanging fruit. I'll pick the low hanging fruit. If it's not worth the squeeze to get the juice out, then I probably won't spend too much time on it. There's always another deal right around the corner. I don't have like FOMO, fear of missing out on these deals. There will be another deal that comes around. The game can also create some interesting experiences because it changes the relationship you have with the places you stay. You didn't really pay to be there, so it wouldn't be odd to feel like you don't belong. Back when I first started, I got the Chase Hyatt credit card and it came with two free nights at any Hyatt in the world. And uh, before I met my wife, I was traveling with my friend and we went to the Park Hyatt Paris Vendome. And we were probably like one or two years outside of college. And we definitely stuck out because it's kind of like a French royalty, kind of like upper end kind of clientele. And there's us that look like we just got off like the bus, whatever. So it was really interesting kind of 
staying at that hotel. It's a really nice hotel, but you kind of feel like you don't really belong with the other people that are paying there because it's like, I don't know, 900 euros a night. I can actually relate to what Grant is saying there. When you check into a hotel and the cars in the valet go Mercedes, Range Rover, Audi, Tesla, Hyundai, and the Hyundai is your car, it creates a very specific feeling of being out of place. In fact, I somewhat worry about this issue of slowly but constantly increasing consumption and what it might do to your future expectations. Grant has a story that was on point with this idea. One of my favorite trips in the last couple of years was when my wife and I flew from San Francisco to Greece on Turkish Airlines, and we flew business class through Istanbul. And that was probably one of the best flights of my life, just because it was nice to have a nice long flight with my wife and kind of spoil her in business class. And I told her before the flight that this trip is going to spoil you and you're never going to want to fly anything other than business class again. And I was right. So once you experience business in first class, it's really hard to uh, go back to economy. But when I travel domestically, I try to um, use miles or points to fly in economy. And then if it's an international flight or red-eye flight, I try to use miles for business class just to make it a little more comfortable and enjoyable. Nick and his wife are often involved in the travel hacking together, but that might be more of a rare case. In fact, Grant's experience seems to be more representative. I think 99% of spouses are like, they don't want to learn. They just want to benefit from the travel. So uh, she goes along with um, applying for certain credit cards to get sign-up bonuses and she helps me meet the minimum spending requirements and then we'll talk about where we want to go with the trips and I'll end up booking the flights and the hotels and I just send her an email. It's just like, pack your bags, we're going. And that's as much involvement that she has with the trip planning and the credit card rewards. I tell my wife, don't apply for any cards unless you run it by me first. And she's not interested in getting more cards because she's like, I just want to use my Capital One card for everything. But I'm like, use that for everything. But if you're going grocery shopping or to a restaurant, use this card. It's not even odd that most spouses don't get into the game. It's the kind of thing that requires some level of obsession. There's so much to learn and so many details to know that most people aren't going to give a shit. It's not just that spouses don't care. Nobody cares. But I think most people, as soon as you say, oh, I'm earning frequent flyer miles, they're like, okay, whatever. This guy's crazy. They don't usually ask any follow-up questions to that. Um, but that's where going to these travel conferences is really interesting. And it's people that can talk about miles and points and travel for hours on end to a complete stranger they met um, just standing in line next to them. So it's really a great community once you're in it. But trying to find people out in the wild who care about this stuff is probably not going to be very easy. Grant said the fact that most people just roll their eyes at point hacking is the reason he started his blog. His friends and family didn't care about the deals he was finding, so the blog lets him connect with people that do care. This same issue where people either don't get it or don't care has made it difficult for Nick to explain exactly what he does. Uh, my wife tends to say, oh, he's a travel blogger. And I always kind of correct her and say, that's not exactly it. Because when people hear that, they think of somebody who's just traveling and reviewing the experience of travel. But rather, I am looking analytically at how how I can exploit the right loopholes and earn large amounts of points, you know, earn miles without flying, as we said, it's kind of our tagline. Uh, and so what I tend to try to explain to people as best I can in a couple of sentences is that I write about 
using credit cards and airline miles and loyalty programs to travel in comfort and luxury. And uh, and typically people think, say, oh, that sounds interesting or exciting. But I, I definitely, I'll say that I think a lot of people think it sounds cool, but aren't necessarily interested in putting in the effort to kind of figure out the, the greater detail of it. I mentioned earlier that I get somewhat worried about the idea of consumption that gets slowly ratcheted up. The human psyche is fairly efficient at taking empty space and filling it with something. And two of the most common things that get shoved into empty space are consumption and achievement. The points game offers both. So in theory, it seems like the kind of thing where there's real potential for an unhealthy dynamic to flourish. But in listening to Grant and Nick, I could hear that even though they're deep in the game, they're still focused on the ways that travel can enrich their actual lives. It's not just chasing a higher level in the game. Another friend of mine, he, his goal in life is to visit every country in the world. And he's pretty much been to all like the places that most people want to go to. So now we're kind of going off the beaten path. So when I'm traveling with him, it's kind of like these are places that I would not like pick at the top of my list. But it's fun to experience different places that you wouldn't expect to go. We did a Asia trip. So I flew into Beijing. I was there for 24 hours. Uh, and then we flew to Myanmar. And then from Myanmar, we went to, let's see, Bangladesh, Bhutan, and Nepal. And then I flew back through Hong Kong. Most of those places are not top of my list of places to visit, but I really enjoyed my time in Myanmar. It was a really cool city and country to visit. So kind of going in with low or no expectations and then be pleasantly surprised by the, the people in the, the countryside and the city is kind of one of the cool aspects of traveling. This little courtyard by Marriott in a town called Hakuba in Nagano Prefecture, which is where the Winter Olympics were years ago in the Nagano Olympics. And uh, and so it was it was ridiculously cheap. It was very inexpensive. And it didn't look anything like a courtyard by Marriott. There were hot springs in the, the rooms and the place looked sort of like a log cabin in the mountains. So, so we had no knowledge of this area whatsoever, except for the fact that there was a cheap Marriott that would help us get a little bit closer to Marriott Elite status and earn some Marriott points from promotions and, and use an Amex offer that we had, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a bunch of little pieces of the puzzle that fit together. And so we said, okay, let's try this out. Never heard of it, but why not? And one of the beauties of Miles and Points is it, it tends to open up things like that that we never would have considered before because we know that we have lots of points and we can always go back and check out different places. So we went to this little town called Hakuba, which is this sleepy little mountain town in Japan. And and when you hear Japan, if you haven't been to rural parts of Japan, the word sleepy probably doesn't come to mind when you think of Japan. But it was very much like a like a small ski bum sort of a town and uh, very cute. And we, and we got to this Marriott that looked nothing like a Marriott, very cozy and warm and sit by the fireplace kind of a feeling and fell asleep, woke up in the morning with snow falling. Here we were in the mountains. We had just been in Tokyo for the cherry blossom the day before. It was warm and beautiful. And now we've got snow falling. And so it was a kind of a magical sort of experience. And, and we went to, to breakfast and, and went to breakfast each of the next several mornings. And my son at that point was about a year and three months old. He was walking at that point, but he had two parents who worked from home and were home with him all the time. So he was fairly shy still with other adults at that point, but he really took to this waitress. 
in the the hotel at the buffet, the breakfast buffet, and uh, and really seemed to like her. Lit up every time she came around, and you know, she would kind of talk to him and play with him a little bit as much as she can with a one year old. And uh, and one morning we were walking out of breakfast, and my wife was in front of me holding his hand, my son's hand. And the waitress was kind of walking towards the exit also with us on the other side of him. And he looked up at her and he reached up and grabbed her hand. And that was something that he just hadn't uh, kind of reached out that way before. And I thought, here we are in this foreign place. uh, and, And here we are with this waitress that looks different and sounds different. And not only is he not afraid or intimidated, but he was comfortable and felt so comfortable as to grab her hand and trust her to help walk him out. And I thought to myself, being able to give my son experiences like that, that I never would have imagined having was something really special to me. So it, it in that instance had nothing to do with getting incredible value, but rather how searching for an incredible value helped me find an experience that, that was something I didn't realize I was looking for. When I explained that this podcast is about gambling and I wanted to do an episode about points and miles, Nick got it right away. He had played poker during the poker boom, and he immediately saw the connection between expected value at the poker table and expected value in travel. But Grant wasn't so sure. He said that in gambling, you can lose, and in travel hacking, you can't. But as he was describing the process that a travel hacker uses to ensure they're getting value, he could have just as easily been talking about a gambler thinking about the EV of a bet. With manufactured spending, you really can't lose in a sense, like you kind of know when you're going in, like you do all the math and calculations. You're like, okay, I'm going to buy this gift card with this credit card. I'm going to earn this many miles and points. It's going to cost me this much, but the points are worth $10 and the gift card cost me $5. So I got the points for like half a cent each or whatever. So like you kind of, you already know the math before like you even like leave your house or make the purchase. So I feel like it's more of like a guaranteed thing in a sense. Um, so that's kind of like when we do like travel conferences in Las Vegas, not many people will gamble because like, why gamble when you could lose money where kind of if you know what you're doing, manufactured spending and travel hacking, like you really can't lose money in a sense. Then again, referring to travel hackers and unaware he was saying something that would apply equally to advantage players, Grant offered this. Kind of like cockroaches, you, you can't get rid of us. So we'll find a way around whatever you put in front of us. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Nick Reyes and Grant Thomas. I'll put links to their websites in the show notes, as well as how you can find them on Twitter. If you have suggestions on future episodes, you can email the show riskofruinpod at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter at Half Kelly. 